It's customary, of course, to begin a Buddhist teaching by going for refuge and setting our motivation. If you've been in classes with me before, you know that I, I rather than reciting a refuge prayer, I prefer to invoke a sense of what the three jewels mean to me personally, so that when I'm going for refuge, I have, I'm generating a, a sincere sense of why the three jewels are valuable and what they, uh, why they're meaningful and what it means to go for refuge. And then when I am using the refuge prayer in the form of like a, a mantric recitation in Tibetan or Sanskrit or Chinese, um, I can tap into that sort of more kind of felt sense of what the three jewels are, uh, how they're, how they're truly meaningful. Um, and so the first, the first of the three jewels, the, the three jewels are of course the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And going for refuge to Buddha, um, Buddha, Gautama Buddha was uh, a person who lived 2,500 years ago and was a, he, he's a person who turned away from a life of leisure and luxury to pursue a life of meaning, of cultivating meaning and finding deep meaning in life. Um, he wasn't interested in material comforts or material success. He wanted to uh, explore deeply what the, the, the source and the origin of the human condition is. Um, and he made the great discovery of nirvana, the end of suffering. Um, Buddha set the, the sole marker of looking for the, the origin of suffering. And his, his goal, his purpose was to find the, uh, a permanent end to suffering. And he made that discovery um, after many grueling years of study and work and um, asceticism in which he starved himself and practiced all of these uh, these um, relatively extreme spiritual um, restrictions that were in vogue at the time. Um, and so when I think about that, you know, Buddha, he, he devoted his life to this purpose. And when he made this great realization, this great discovery of nirvana, he devoted the rest of his life to sharing it with others, to helping others reach that. So I, I think of him as kind of the, the paragon of humanity, the, you know, the, the bar that we're aiming for when we're thinking of, of what we're striving for in our life. And, and not only that, but that it's possible to end suffering and that we are perfectible, perhaps. Um, that there's something worth striving for, um, something that's deeply meaningful and transformative. So going for refuge to Buddha means to, to me, means to um, be to know that there's this this um, this marker has been set, this um, this bar has been set that that we can work towards. And going for refuge to the Dharma, the the word Dharma, Dharma is a Sanskrit word, and it means many different things. Um, so it's a little bit hard, it's a little bit tricky to pin down Dharma exactly. It's co commonly used in Buddhism to refer to the teachings of Buddhism, uh, the teachings of Buddha. But the word Dharma also means, um, it means law, both in the sense of of like a social custom or a rule, and also a law in the sense of a natural law, like like we think of the law of gravity, and um, and I think there's a word that uh, in, you know an English word that encompasses those multiple interpretations of the word dharma is truth. Um, things are true in the sense that we can believe in them, that we know that they are real, and so when we have faith in the dharma, we have faith in it the same way that we have faith in gravity not because we 
wish it were true, but because we experience it deeply moment to moment in our life. And, and we almost to the point that we take it for granted because its truth is so self-evident. So I think taking refuge in the Dharma is, is both that Buddha's teachings, that we have access to Buddha's teachings, that we have a methodology, that there's something we can do about the human condition of, of suffering. And also that through the, the practices of Buddhism that we can come to have this kind of foundational confidence in the truth of the Dharma. And the, the third jewel is the Sangha. And uh, the Sangha is a community of practitioners. And uh, the Sangha we take refuge in because we have, um, you know, we have our friends. We have our spiritual friends. Um, people who are, um, who take this work seriously and who we can inspire each other and have confidence, uh, have confidence that, that we're working on it together, um, that there's people that we can reach out to for support. And also historically that there are people who have, um, followed Buddha's path and, and developed the same realizations that Buddha did. And that increases our, uh, our sense of confidence and inspiration. So uh, I find the, that to be a, a meaningful way that I can connect with the three jewels by reflecting reflecting on their deeper meaning. And the, the next thing that we do customarily at the beginning of a Buddhist teaching is to set our motivation. And... Um, we're in a, this is a Mahayana center. And so that means we are um, following the Bodhisattva path, the, the path of, of um, ending suffering, not just for ourselves, but for others as well. And um, so when I think about my motivation, you know, I'll be frank that, uh, you know, what, it draw, what draws me to Buddhism is that it speaks directly to suffering and the causes of suffering and the solutions to suffering. And that's something I'm very interested in because I would like to end my suffering. I would like to re reduce and eliminate suffering. Um, but it's also true. So, so you know, in that regard, my motivation is is selfish. Not uh, it's not a harmful form of selfish, but it's a it's a self interested form of selfish. But in the Mahayana, we're also pointed to that 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 ending our own suffering is not sufficient truly to end, to end suffering, that we would not feel satisfied with our own equilibrium and nirvana if we, were, if we were still navigating a world of others who are still suffering. And so the Mahayana is saying that it's, it's worthwhile, that the, the arhat path of, of seeking um, nirvana for yourself is valid and relevant and useful and helpful and necessary. And also that once, even once we attain nirvana for ourselves, we will still see that there's more work to do. And, and that we should remember that our work in the world is to help others alleviate their suffering and ultimately to eliminate their suffering. So when we draw up that motivation, you know, that it's, it's worthwhile to be working towards ending our own suffering. I'm, and also that we are wanting to be act, you know, actors and agents in, in making the world a better place. And so, uh, so this course, How Karma Works, is uh, directly oriented towards that goal because we are looking at how causation works. We're looking at why why things are the way that they are for us, and also um, what are the what are the the actions that we can take to improve our condition. Um, there's I, I I think there's there's three or four main sources of information for for studying and learning about Buddhism, and the. The first one are the sutras or suttas. Um, sutta is a Pali word, and sutra is a Sanskrit word. And the the, the suttas are the um, 
recorded words of, of Gautama Buddha. So his immediate followers collected what he said and uh, they, they transcribed it. Buddha didn't write anything, of course. He just talked to people. People came to him in, for advice and he explained his perspective and explained to them um, what they can do to reduce or eliminate their suffering, um, kind of on a case-by-case basis. And so his many followers took everything that he he said and they wrote it down. And that's collected in, in a, a canon of literature called, called the sutras. Um, the, the second are, th- are the commentaries on the sutras, um, which are not just commentaries, but also uh, philosophical extrapolation, philosophical speculation. Uh, in Sanskrit, these are called shastras. So you have this, the sutras and the shastras. The sutras are the words of Buddha, and the shastras are what subsequent generations of philosophers and thinkers and meditators have had to say about Buddhism. And that's where the proliferation of all of the different schools of Buddhism comes from, because also amongst the Shastras are these kind of debates, these back and forth where people are saying, well, I think Buddha meant this. And other people say, well, I think Buddha meant this. And then we kind of hash it out, you know? Um, and so, you know, the, whereas the Sutras were spoken, were, were recorded over the 40 years of Buddha's life, we have 2,400 years of, of, of Shastras, right? Generation after generation of, of people writing about Buddhism. And that process continues. Um, but the Shastras, by and large, are considered authoritative. The, the Shastras are literature that, that uh, serious practitioners and serious scholars of Buddhism kind of put their own spin on it. The, the third is the, the third source of information about Buddhism is the lineage, which is to say that Buddhist teachers and scholars and meditators, you know, have been teaching one generation to the next since from, from Buddha's time up to the present day. And in that sense, we have uh, this living tradition, right? The Shastras... The, the sutras and the shastras represent kind of snapshots in time. We can look at what people were thinking about, what people were saying about Buddhism at these different points in history. But the lineage is this living, flowing process of Buddhism, of Buddhist teachings that continues up into the present moment. Um, and so the shastras, I mean, what the, the lineage is is constantly being updated. Whereas like the the uh, the teachings of uh, Buddhism, like the basic core tenets, the basic core principles, uh, are are more or less the same since Buddha's time. But the way that they're taught, the flavor for the the culture and the time that they're in, is is constantly flowing, constantly changing, constantly being updated, and that's what keeps Buddhism relevant. Uh, it also contributes to the proliferation of different schools because when pe- two people teach Buddhism different ways, they kind of you know, different people resonate with that differently. And so we have these kind of different groups or sects or lineages, but they all can trace their their pedigree back to Buddha through this ongoing process. So the, the fourth, uh, I say, is the, the fourth uh, source of, of uh, authentic, meaningful information about Buddhism is your own personal experience. Um, Buddhism is not, the, the teachings of Buddhism are not, you know, dry philosophy. They are living philosophy. And in fact, Gautama Buddha, during his life, um, he, he cautioned people against trying to form a philosophy or a religion or a school of thought around his teachings. Um, Buddha said that he, he, he said about himself that he was a physician and his teachings were the medicine. And each person that he was speaking to was a sick person who needed the medicine. And his job as the doctor, Buddha's job as the doctor, was to give the right medicine to the right patient at the right time. Um, And that's something that um, it really requires the insight of a Buddha to be able to, to see right at the heart of what a person needs and be able to give just the right tweak and and like give them just the tool that they need. 
to, to practice. And so if we're fortunate enough to have a, a living Buddha in our life, then we can gain that, you know, we can benefit from that wisdom, from that insight. Um, but if we don't, we uh, instead have this range of thought experiments that Buddha laid out for people and that the subsequent generations of Buddhist practitioners have, have also developed. Um, with great proliferation, there are massive, you know, there are, in, in one school of Buddhism I studied, they said there are 84,000 Dharma doors which is a metaphor for every person has their own practice that's going to work for them. And so we should be, our, our goal as, as Buddhist practitioners is to figure out what the practice that's going to open us up, that's going to work for us personally. And also not try to just fit into a box that somebody else says, Buddhism is practiced like this. And then you try to like be a round peg in a square hole and fit into their explanation. I mean, try it on, right? We want to, we, we want to experiment and find out, right? We have all of these different possibilities and we want to work with them. Um, but also we, we will want to figure out what is the Dharma door for us? What is the door that when it opens, when it opens up, we can step through it and be in the stream, the flow of, of Dharma ourselves personally. So, I, and, and also, um, Dharma is only real, really, when we produce the realizations in our own mind stream. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to study Buddhism. Um, there are... You know, you can go to universities where you can talk about the history of the texts and when they were written and what their authorship was and so on. Um, but it's really only when we put the teachings into practice that we produce the realizations. And the realizations are the Dharma. That's the, you know, that's the Dharma that flows through, the, through time in the, in, the, in the ongoing present moment of our experience. So in this um, in this course, we're looking at uh, a couple of shastras. So we're looking at commentaries, and um, the the first commentary that we're looking at is, uh, and this is the this is the main text that we're looking at. It's called the Abhidharma Kosha, and it's by um, uh, by a scholar and practitioner named Vasubandhu, Master Vasubandhu. Um, uh, Vasubandhu lived around 350 AD, um, and he was uh, living at a time when the, 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 a, a major school of Buddhism was called Abhidharma. And Abhidharma was an approach to Buddhism that was focused on analyzing the micro-moments of mind. So what the, the question that Abhidharmists have is, you know, this is a big question throughout Buddhism, is how is karma propagated through time? And so the Abhidharmists were like, well, we're, we have these micro moments of mind, and each micro moment of mind triggers the next micro moment of mind. And when I say micro moment, I've heard numbers ranging between, there are 60, there are 60 micro moments in every finger snap, 60, and I've heard up to something like 60,000 in every finger snap. So, Essentially, your mind is proliferating at this unfathomable rate of speed. And the Abhidharmists wanted to analyze that process. So they, they practiced meditation where they got their mind so still that they could slow down time in their own process and they could look at and analyze and document and write down, okay, this, these are all of the characteristics of your mind, all of these different primary and secondary characteristics, and these characteristics trigger these characteristics and so on, and that's how karma is propagated throughout time. And um, Vasubandhu wrote a major text on this, um, on this approach, on this, this approach to practicing Buddhism called the Abhidharma Kosha. So um, Dharma, we've already established, that we've talked a little bit about this word Dharma, and um, there's another another meaning of the word dharma is phenomena, as in like um, a discrete 
object of phenomena. So Dharma, in, in the Abhidharma, Dharma is referring to these individual moments of mind as dharmas. And um, it's also referring to Dharma in the sense of Buddha Dharma, the, the, the big, the, you know, kind of capital T truth of Buddhist philosophy. Uh, that Buddhist philosophy is pointing us towards. And in fact, that's what abhi means. The Sanskrit prefixed abhi means to or towards or bringing something closer to. So abhidharma means taking you closer towards this, this wisdom, this knowledge, this understanding. And what's this knowledge of un and understanding? It's how the mind works, how reality is coming, not from out outer objects impinging on our senses, but from our own, the, our own process of consciousness is is fabricating reality um, and then the the word kosha uh, in this the the uh, title of the text abhidharma kosha kosha means container or, or holder um, so this book is sometimes colloquially called the treasure house of higher knowledge um, the the word kosha being euphemistically or poetically translated as treasure house to give it this sense of gravitas, you know? Um, and, and dharma meaning not just ordinary knowledge, but this wisdom of how our mind works, which is unlocking, you know, our ability to understand uh, reality itself and, our, and understand ourselves deeply. <clears throat> so um, that's the, the sort of root text, Abhidharma Kosha by Vasubandhu. And then where some of this information also comes from a commentary on that text called Illumination of the Path to Freedom, which was written by the uh, first Dalai Lama, uh, who lived from 1391 to 1474. Um, we're, you know, Diamond Light is a Tibetan Buddhist center and it's uh, oriented primarily to the Geluk tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, the, the Dalai Lamas are a uh, lineage of, of high lamas who, were, who started from the beginning of the, uh, the Geluk tradition. Um, they're considered to be, the Dalai Lamas are considered to be emanations of the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion. We're on the 14th Dalai Lama now. Um, and so you can imagine that one after the other, it's it's basically from from the Tibetan point of view, this is one person who has gone through 14 lives in a continuous stream to kind of maintain this energy of enlightened compassion in the world. So the the first Dalai Lama is the author of our commentary. So um, <clears throat> when we're looking at these uh, at these you know, pieces of Buddhist literature, we have to have some kind of markers for their authenticity. And this is what the Dalai Lama, the first Dalai Lama teaches as the things to look at when um, analyzing the, um, the authenticity of a Buddhist book. Um, the, the book needs to have, uh, he looks at four characteristics. The, the subject matter the um, purpose of the book, the ultimate goal of the book, and whether or not the purpose and the ultimate goal relate to each other directly. So the, the subject matter needs to be about um, differentiating between wisdom and ignorance. Uh, according to the Dalai Lama, this is the thing that we're looking for in a book. Does this book, does this piece of literature, does this book, Buddhist text, um, help clarify how to move from ignorance to wisdom. The purpose of the book is to help students, help the reader um, develop this type of wisdom for the purpose of ending their suffering. The, the ultimate goal of the text is to lead one to nirvana. So this was something, this kind of distinction that I've been making is that Buddha taught people how to reduce their suffering and ultimately how to end their suffering. And that's what the, the, that's what the difference between the purpose and the ultimate goal of the book. Does the book teach you how to reduce your suffering 
And is it also teaching you how to ultimately eliminate suffering by working towards nirvana? You can imagine that there's a book that teaches you how to release, relieve your suffering in the short term, but not actually leading you towards nirvana in the long term. That's why the book has to be teaching uh, wisdom, how to, how to understand and operate your mind. And so that's the relation, is the, the, this fourth quality that the Dalai Lama said, that the text, uh, that the, the purpose of helping you alleviate your suffering and the ultimate goal of ending your suffering and attaining nirvana, that the, the methodology for both of those goals is the same. So um, we're looking at this because um, this is how the Dalai Lama, the, the first Dalai Lama is... Uh, in his commentary on the Abhidharma Kosha, um, presenting to us a book that uh, meets his criteria for a piece of authentic Buddhist literature, authentic, uh, um, an authentic Dharma text. So the, the question of this book, the Abhidharma Kosha, is where does the world come from? That's a big question. Um, and so one of the things that, uh, that Avasubandhu does early in the text is he starts to analyze what are some ways of looking at where the world is coming from. And the first thing that he does is he looks at two other uh, two possible explanations for the world is, uh, where the world is coming from, and he's analyzing uh, the validity of these. And the one of the the notions is that things are happening entirely uh, at random; that there is essentially no relationship between cause and effect, and that um, that it's more or less impossible to predict or anticipate what's going to happen because things are happening um, in 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 no kind of discernible sequence. And if we are to, you know, this worldview is um, more prevalent than we think um, because it's essentially the 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 mechanistic definition of the world of the universe that um, at a at a at a microscopic level there's little things that are just kind of bumping into each other or or fields of energy that are inter interfering uh, interfacing with each other and affecting each other and that this process started due to a cause that we don't understand that we don't really know in some in antiquity and that essentially this you know this initial event that, that created our universe, which we don't know what caused it, itself has just propagated uh, this sort of uh, outpouring of energy and matter that has been continuing on through for billions of years into the present day. And that basically, you know, when we look around our world, uh, and look at our experience and look at our own bodies and our own minds that we're essentially, um, you know, accidental byproducts of this mechanistic process. And, you know, it, it, even though it hasn't been proven in neuroscience, it is, a, it is a kind of an assumption in neuroscience that it's going to be discovered that the mind is a byproduct of the brain. And that the brain is essentially a biochemical or, or a bioelectrical chemical process, a mechanism, and that our mind is kind of emerges from that. And that any change to the brain is has the is going to affect the mind. And essentially that's what the mind is. And then when the body dies, the, the biochemical processes stop and the mind ceases to exist. And it's kind of just sort of a, a this 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 flow this pattern of random events that started in antiquity with the beginning of the universe um and that's you know in a way that's kind of um that's kind of the scientific materialist worldview uh i of course realize that i realize that i'm oversimplifying it for the sake of making a point but 
uh, I think that you can kind of see what I mean, that this, this worldview of things are happening for no real discernible cause, we can kind of trace things back, but there was no real discernible cause for the beginning of, of all of it, and our, we're essentially mechanical or physical processes, and that our minds are just kind of happening, but they don't really have any kind of meaning or purpose. And then you have the opposite extreme, which is that there is an ultimate intelligence that fabricated the universe and is, you know, the, the omnipotent being that created the, the universe and is responsible for everything that's happening inside of it. And, um, you know, both of these worldviews existed during Buddha's time, and they uh, obviously can, were around in, in uh, um, Vasubandhu's time because that's what he was writing about. Um, and so Vasubandhu, you know, seeks to set up some kind of logical proofs to um, disprove these perspectives, to disprove these worldviews. Um, and his his proof against a uh, his proof against a kind of creator god is um, is hinges on the notion of changing things and unchanging things. So he uh, essentially we can we can see that things are constantly in a process of change, and it's uh, it's kind of a Buddhist truism that you know change is the only constant, and um, that nothing is never not changing. Um, that change is an ongoing continual process, and in fact, the only thing that we can say that for sure about things is that the things are in the process of change. And so when we are um, looking at this idea of a creator god, the, the idea of the creator god is uh, an omnipotent being who exists outside of the universe that they created. And the because the creator god is omnipotent, it um, can do everything. But somehow it also is this ultimate consciousness that's not changing because if if it were changing it would its omnipotence would would be in flux and if if uh the universe has been created by this this creator god then that creator god itself is in the process of change and if the creator god is in the process of change then it's part of the universe it's not outside of the universe and and uh, uh, Vasubandhu kind of sets us up into this logical paradox where we have to either decide, do we believe in something that's omnipotent or do we believe in something that is changing? Um, the other major problem with the, with the creator, with the omnipotent creator God is that um, there's no possibility for choice. There's no possibility for individuality. We exist only as a, a facet or an extension of the sort of infinite consciousness that created the universe. And essentially we don't have any free will, we don't have any ability to make choices for ourselves, and that removes all possibility for ethics or values or um, or kind of good, the whole kind of question of, of good versus bad actions is taken off the table because I don't have any free will. I don't choose what I'm doing. I'm merely willed to do the things that I do by the creator God um, because the creator God is omnipotent. If the creator God isn't controlling everything that I do, then we couldn't say that the creator God is omnipotent. And then that sets up another kind of logical paradox. Um, the... Uh, the other pers the other kind of perspective that things are happening at random i think is easier to disprove and vasubandhu just kind of pushes us to to take it one step further um we can see that our actions have consequences um you know we we go to work in order to get money so that we can pay our rent you know like obviously if things were if things were happening at random then going to work would sometimes get money and sometimes not get money and paying our rent would sometimes mean we had a place to live and sometimes it wouldn't work that way it would just sort of be a, a flip of the coin every time 
But we do acknowledge that that we have that our, our actions have consequences. Um, and Vasubandhu is just asking us to to take it one step further. Um, I want to interject that I don't. I, I believe that karma is not asking us to believe in something magical or otherworldly. I believe that karma is describing something that we already know and experience. It's descriptive. It's describing the world as it is. Um, it's not asking us to believe in something that we can't directly experience. But these descriptions of karma are are pushing the boundaries of what we normally think of as causality, normally think of as causation. I think we we all, you know, intuitively, without thinking about it, believe in causality. Um, we are when we get hungry, we eat food. It's like very simple. But but um, Buddhist causality, Buddhist karma, is saying that it's not that that all of those things are true, but also that our thoughts themselves create, put into action, put into place causes that then bring about future results. Um, and that's the main that's the main thing that I think karma, where Buddhist karma is trying to get us to look at the world in a way that's different than we're, we're, we're accustomed to. Um, and so Buddhism says that there's two, there's two main types of karma. Um, one is the, um, the acts of body and speech. And that's the kind of causality that we largely already recognize and believe in. Um, but the other type is mental karma. Um, Karma, we have, they, they talk about it as movement. There, there's two types of karma. There's the movement of the mind, and there's the movement of speech and body. And the, the mental karma, the movement of the mind, is itself creating causes that are leading to results in the future. Um, it's not just that we, what we say and what we do that that uh, puts into into place causes that lead to results. It's also, and more importantly, uh, what we think. So, this is that big. This is that bigger picture of karma. That everything that we're experiencing in the present moment, in the ongoing present moment, is the result, the end result of karma that has been planted in the past. Karma of actions. Like, I ate a late lunch, so I'm not hungry right now. I'm, I'm healthy because I have, in the past, made efforts to care for the health of others. Um, actions of speech, which I think we can see when we speak kindly to other people, speak, people tend to speak kindly to us. Um, if we live in a peaceful place, it's because we've created the karma through our past actions, through our past speech, to, uh, to create a world that's peaceful for others. And so we get to live in a world that's peaceful for ourselves. And also the way that we think. How we, the way that we use our mind in the present is the result of the ways that we've used our mind in the past. And... And again, I think we can see this in our daily life in the form of like habits, for example. Um, habits are karma of the mind, first and foremost. Um, patterns of thought. Um, you know, when we have, uh, I don't know if it's, if it's just me or if it's everybody, but, um, you know, I have these kind of memories that come up frequently or these old stories that come up frequently and uh and those stories kind of start to influence or create the kind of personality that i have because i think of myself as a certain type of person because i have these memories of myself doing these kinds of having these experiences and doing these kinds of things um and that is a that's a pattern that's it's not something that I 
kind of have the volition to like completely recreate in any moment that I could just be a completely different kind of person because I can just end that old thought that old those old thought patterns and introduce new thought patterns and have everything be totally different like the way the why I am the way that I am is because of who I was and who I was is creating who I am now buddhism says okay that is a process that has an infinite scope or maybe a nearly infinite scope that your mind is not something that's created or destroyed with your body but that your body and your mind is a product of your karma and your karma has has an infinite past so i exist in this infinite this i mean i don't know if it's infinite right that's kind of metaphysical explanation uh metaphysical speculation uh, and, and Buddha discouraged people from engaging in too much metaphysical uh, speculation because he said it's not very helpful for ending suffering. Um, but many of Buddha's followers and descendants, uh, after, Buddha, after Buddha died in his Parinirvana, uh, many people after uh, Buddha did engage in a great deal of metaphysical speculation, even though Buddha uh, discouraged it. So... Uh, we're, it's, it's, it's a, I, you know, I don't, I can't prove to you that karma has been going on for infinite time and that you are, that you have infinite past karma and that you may have infinite future karma. But Buddhism, I, you know, again, I think Buddhism is a, is a series of thought experiments. And the purpose of these teachings is to outline the thought experiment. And then we have to do the thought experiment in ourselves. So this this notion that we have that are that the movements of our mind are themselves underlying all of the causation that we experience in our life. And therefore everything that we perceive, all of the objects in the world, all of the people, um, all of our experiences are really being driven by our karma. Um we we never really interface directly with the world. We only interface with our perceptions of the world. Um, and Buddhism would uh, Buddhism would say, uh, especially like Prajnaparamita, an emptiness philosophy would say, well, th there is no world that's not being perceived by someone, and therefore the only world that there is is the perception of any individual perceiving their world. And so each of you are living in a world that's unique to you, that's generated by your karma. And that, uh, that karma is primarily a mental process. And, the, and the, the mental process then drives the physical process, the physical processes of body and speech. Now, we have, uh, there's a, an optional homework assignment but before we get to that homework assignment, um, there's another uh, another thought experiment that that Buddhism introduces, and it says, "Okay, given this, given that our that the, what we experience is the result of karma, how we react to it is creating new karma that's going to ripen in the future." Is there a way, and, and so then everything we're doing, every, every movement of body, speech, and mind is creating karma that is going to necessarily create results in the future. Most of the time, we're worried about food, shelter, how other people are perceiving us, um, you know, our daily tasks for the day. Like we, you know, from the perspective of like generating tremendous amounts of, of good karma, like is there a way we can kind of game the system to generate lots of good karma without having to constantly be working at generating good karma. And um, this is what in the, in the text, and if you read the, the, the handout, you'll see that this is what the, the Dalai Lama is, is uh, calling communicating karma and non-communicating karma. And he says communicating karma is karma that it, it communicates in that you can see it in the moment. Um, when I'm driving aggressively 
because I'm I have road rage and I'm and I'm being a I'm being aggressive behind the wheel. That's communicating karma because everybody can see the, the state of my mind because it's I'm wearing it on my sleeve, right? Um, if I'm having a second slice of chocolate cake or if I'm skipping dinner to have chocolate cake, which is a real life example, um, that's communicating karma because you can see that I am more interested in having something that's really sweet and delicious than I am in interested in eating something that's healthy and gonna take care of my body over the long term. My motivation is right there. There's no, I can, I can try to come up with justifications or explanations because like maybe the chocolate cake is gonna go bad and I don't wanna waste it, but really we know what is motivating having chocolate cake instead of, you know, uh, lentil soup for dinner or something. So um, then they distinguish this with, with, so most of our karma is communicating karma, right? You can see what we're doing. Then the non-communicating karma is karma that is always happening whether we're doing the action or not. And this is why Buddhism puts an emphasis on precepts or vows, right? So um, in Buddhism, this is, if you, to be kind of like an official card-carrying Buddhist, you you would do something called like a refuge ceremony and take precepts. Um, some schools call them precepts, some schools call them vows. So you may have heard either or both terms. And this is where you like get down on one knee and you put your hands together and you say, I promise from now until I die to take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha no matter what. Even at the threat of life, I won't renounce my refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And I promise to take these these precepts and the the we'll get into it in more detail later in the course, but like they're non you know, they're promises to not harm other beings. Don't kill, don't lie, don't steal. Um, those kinds of things, right? Um, and so, ac according to the Dalai Lama and many Buddhist thinkers, this creates something called non-communicating karma, which is that when you when you make a promise to to keep this this vow, to keep this precept, you're generating the good karma all the time that you're not breaking the precept. So this has some wonderful advantages. If you take precepts and you and you have like a, a, a promise to not kill other beings, so, okay. If you're just relying on communicating karma, right? You get good karma when you choose to not kill an animal. You have the option to kill it or a bug. Let's say a bug. Most of us don't have options to kill animals very often, but we all have. Uh, uh, we all encounter sp spiders and flies and stuff in our house that we wish weren't there. You can choose to kill the thing or not to kill the thing. And choosing to not kill the thing is good karma. Um, but if you take a vow to not kill living beings, then you get the good karma of not killing all the time. You're constantly racking up the good karma because of the precept. And this is the, the power of what the Dalai Lama here is calling non-communicating karma. You're generating the good karma not just in the moment that you're doing the action, but you're generating the good karma all the time that you are, that, from the point that you've taken that precept forward. Um, now, this is also dangerous because you, that means that it's very, very important that you don't break the precept, because then if you break the precept, it means that you didn't actually mean it when you took the, the vow way back in the day, and then you lose all that good karma. I don't know if that's how it works. There's like, you can try to do the karma arithmetic the karma ledger in your head, but I discourage it because it's it's a rabbit hole and you could drive yourself crazy. Um, that's one of the risks of learning about karma is driving yourself nuts trying to figure out what your karmic bank account looks like. Um, but this is something that the Dalai Lama thinks is really important for us to know because he's encouraging us to like create this good karma, stop creating this bad karma and create this good karma by um, making these commitments to live ethically and to live uh, according to a value system. So um, there's a meditation assignment, um, which is optional. You're not going to get any bad karma if you don't do the meditation assignment. It's just a, it's a thought experiment. And if you are interested in this thought experiment, try it out. And if you're not in th interested in this thought experiment, no problem. Um, but the, the thought experiment is to think about how we think causality is working. 
Um, why, you know, why do some, why do we sometimes experience positive things, and why do we sometimes experience unpleasant things? And and try not to think too much about how you think it's working for other people. Like, why did the guy who was mean to you in tenth grade like now drive a faster car and have more money? Like, try not to put it. Try not to think about this from other people's point of view. Um, try to just think about it from your own point of view. Think of like your think about it in your own kind of your own nexus, your own worldview. And the big three are are things happening just kind of randomly. Like, um, like I, I, sometimes good things happen and, and sometimes bad things happen, but there's not really any kind of like underlying reason for it. Um, is somebody in charge? The, the second worldview is, is, uh, is there an omnipotent creator being who's micromanaging everything in the universe? Do I, is that? the way that I want to think about how the world is working? Or do we, do we, can we accept this karmic, this karmic perspective, which is that everything is happening, everything is happening for, for reasons. That there is like a refractory, a refractory process in which the, th- the actions of our thoughts, of our speech, and of our, of our bodies have over over a long period of time have created these kind of ripples and we're experiencing the ripples coming back at us in all of these varying ways. Now, um, a caution in this is that the, 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 easy, the easy way to avoid doing this exercise is to, and, I, and I'm afraid that this is largely how, uh, how I live, and maybe maybe you'll identify with this, is that it's sort of a combination of the three. Um, sometimes things just happen. Who knows why? Um, sometimes things are, like, sometimes there's divine intervention. And, and like, you know, we, we pray to God to, like, intercede on my behalf, and it, like, works sometimes. And sometimes it's due to causality. Like when I got a promotion, that was due to my hard work. But when like the other person gets a cause, the, the promotion, like who knows? Stuff happens. I don't know. Uh, or like when I almost get into a car accident and it's a close call and I don't get into a car, a car accident, that's uh, because the man upstairs is looking out for me. And we just sort of like pick and choose which worldview fits with the given circumstances. But that's you know, that's a chaos. And so what what this thought experiment is asking us to do is to try to hone in as much as possible on how we think the world is working, how we see how we see this process of the universe happening, and and to see if we can if we can adopt this idea of karma, uh, this idea that that the reason things are the way they are is because of my own choices in the past.